All right, guys, today's topic for 2021 is evolution. So we're going to talk about how things change over time. And that's all evolution says is that there is a change over time. And when we look at evolution, this change over time is in the allelic frequencies within a population. So evolution, cumulative change, heritable characteristics. So it has to be something in the genetics that can be inherited between organisms. And we're gonna look at this as a population, not as an individual. There must be some variation between organisms and without variation, you can't have evolution. You can't have allelic frequencies change if all of the allelic frequency is the same. So you can't have a change in allelic frequencies if everyone has blonde hair. There's no change to be had at that point. Um, change in frequency in the genes in the gene pool of the population. And gene pool is everyone that you could share your genes with. And depending on what kind of species you are, you could have a very limited gene pool. Like let's say you're a snail, your gene pool is only the snails in RSM. Or you could have a very wide expansive gene pool like humans, right? We could go anywhere in the world and share our genes with someone else and really increase our genetic variability that way. Evolution again refers to the permanent genetic change in a population of individuals. It doesn't refer to change within a single individual within its own lifetime. And so you as a human are not going to evolve within your lifetime. Now that's not to say that you're not going to see evolution of some other species within your lifetime. So for example, bacteria that could have two or three generations in a single day, you could do your graduate research on E. coli and evolve an E. coli over the period of a year. And in that year, you could have a million different generations. And that million different generations would be enough to see evolution occur. Microevolution is small scale changes within gene pools over generations. This is where you're doing the Hardy Weinberg and you're starting to see those numbers change. Whereas macroevolution is now this huge phenotypic shift. So like the woolly mammoth to the elephant, where the hair has all been lost because of an environmental change. Again, variation really important. So individuals within a population are different. We all look different. And through sexual selection, we're going to choose those traits that we think are beneficial and leave the traits behind that we don't think are. We get this variation again through sexual reproduction. And so your mom and your dad had you and you are not an exact copy of mom and dad. There's some variation there and your sister doesn't look like you. So there's some variation there. And we get this variation through meiosis with crossing over and independent assortment. Allele frequency is the proportion of the dominant allele and the proportion of the recessive allele in the population. And then how that washes out into phenotypic frequencies. Gene pool is anyone that you can share your genes with. And again, it could be very expansive or it could be very small. Obviously the more expansive the gene pool, the better we are for survivability um, and less extinction because we can survive greater environmental changes because we have that greater variability. Three graphs that you need to know. So if we go out and we do Hardy-Weinberg and we figure out the graph for how it distributes over the mean, that medium um, look at things. And then we go out in 50 years and we do this graph again. 
How is it changing? Has we, have we shifted away from the mean? If your population isn't changing, if your population's not evolving, then that middle section is going to stay the dominant. Um, when you think about this, let's talk human height. And so we have this variation of human height. We have short people, medium people, tall people. If we have stabilizing selection, the medium height person kind of stays the most common in human population. And so we are sexually selecting for the medium height person. We're not going out with the really tall people. We're not going out with the really short people. It's that average medium tall person that we want. And it's the same today as it is 25 years from now, 50 years from now, the medium height guy is the one we want. If we have directional selection, and this is what human height is actually doing, every generation gets a little bit taller than the generation before it. If you go back to medieval Europe and you look, the doorways are a lot shorter. And it's not because people like to duck to get into their house, it's because people were shorter. Think about it, chicks in the room. Would you date a guy that is shorter than you? Most of you wouldn't. We sexually select for taller guys and we wanna wear heels at our wedding. So they have to be even taller at that point so that I can put on a two inch heel. And the outcome of that is if my husband is taller than I am, then chances are my children will genetically be taller than I am. And so if my daughter's taller than I am, she then selects someone who's taller than her. And then my grandchildren are taller as well. And we have this shift towards one end of the spectrum um, in the phenotype. Disruptive selection is a little bit different. Disruptive selection, the really tall guy would get dates and the really short guy would get dates, but the average height guy would not. Where we often see disruptive selection is in environmental change, where you have one population that is all of a sudden subjected to like really cold weather, whereas the other population isn't. And now you have these really two distinct populations, these two distinct subsets of allelic frequency. I'm not going to go over Hardy Weinberg except to remind you of the assumptions. So in order for your allelic frequencies to never change, so Hardy Weinberg says no evolution, this is what has to happen. For no evolution, the organism is diploid and sexually reproducing, and the traits that we're looking at are autosomal, though your normal body traits. The organism has very discrete populations. And so you have a population that doesn't intermix, you have no immigration, you have no immigration. These are your individuals. Your gene pool is kind of stagnant. And you have random mating. It doesn't matter who you mate with, you're just gonna mate. There's no sexual selection here. The population is of infinite size and sufficiently large. So even though your gene pool is the same, there's a lot of people in your gene pool and there's no natural selection. So there's no benefit to one trait over another. All of these things have to be in place in order for there to be absolutely no evolution. Well, we know that's not true, right? We know that for the most part, we don't have discrete populations. We do have movement in and out, even if we're talking wild animals. We know that random mating isn't a thing. There is always mate selection. We know that not all of our populations are sufficiently large. This is why we have critically endangered stuff. And we know that natural selection is always occurring. And here's how you work the problem. Again, we've already done this, so I'm kind of scheming through. 
Hardy-Weinberg is our best evidence for evolution is measuring that phenotypic shift, that allelic shift in the populations, but there is other evidence for evolution. So without math, you can say there's still evolution occurring. We can look at the fossil record. This is all of the fossils that have ever been discovered. And we consider all the ones that are undiscovered that we pretty much know are gonna exist out there. Now remember, we don't have a complete fossil record. We are missing things. We have that missing um, gap especially in human evolution. But think about what it takes to become a fossil. You have to die in the right time, in the right place. You have to die where no predators are going to scavenge your body and pull your body apart and separate the bones and scatter them out throughout the terrain. And you have to die in a place where you're going to be quickly buried but yet buried in a way that in a million years, some guy is going to be walking through the desert and trip over your bone. Because that's essentially what's going on, right? We know where there are hot pockets of evolution, but we still got to find the bones. And we're not just going to start digging up the entire landscape. So these are bones that have come to the surface through erosion, essentially, or through an animal digging. And you have to be, have a scientist be at the right place at the right time to find that bone. And if you think about the hot pockets, especially for human evolution, there are places where there are wars going on. So there's not gonna be a lot of you know, expeditions into those areas. Fossils are mineralized remains of organisms, um, doesn't happen very often. And we're gonna use carbon and potassium dating and argon um, dating in order to figure out how old these things are. We know about half-life. A half-life is the amount of time it takes for half of a radioactive material to turn normal essentially. And we know the half-life of carbon and we know the half-life of potassium. And so we can look at what the proportions are in today in the atmosphere if you were to die today, what the proportions would be in your body. And then we look at the proportions in the fossil that we found and we can do some math to figure out how long ago this organism died. Um, the problem with looking at fossils, especially things that no longer exist is a lot of it's up for interpretation. So this is the classic um, fossil are dinosaurs reptiles or are dinosaurs birds. You can look at this fossil and you can pull features from both. Uh, evidence for evolution is the fact that we can cause it. We can do selective breeding. I can go in and say, I want a Rhodesian Ridgeback that has these traits to be protective of my diamond mine. And I can take a bloodhound and a greyhound and a wolfhound and breed all of those dogs together and keep that selective breeding going to highlight the trait I want. Well, if I can do it, then so can nature. Nature can say, these traits allow you to survive and these traits don't. If you're an albino squirrel, you're not gonna make it because you can be seen and so the birds are gonna eat you first. Homologous structures, these are structures that are similar in form between two species, um, different function. So if you look at a whale's flipper and a human's arm, the bones are laid out the same, but they have completely different function. This shows a common ancestor, right? Evolution is, or even the human body and genetics is efficient. And so we're gonna have one set of code for the layout, but then the function's going to change a little bit. And if we have the same code for the layout, then we must have had a common ancestor somewhere along the line. Um, reproduction here, we know that most organisms are gonna have way more offspring that can survive. And only those that are well-suited for the environment are gonna make it. Um, 
the ones that are well suited are the ones that are going to reproduce and they're going to pass whatever trait it is that allowed them to be well suited on to the next generation. So of the offspring that are produced, some are better suited. Competition exists. Life is not easy. Things die. And those that are best suited and outcompete are going to have the most offspring passing those traits on. We call this idea natural selection. So nature is selecting for what organisms get to reproduce, essentially. You need to look at what defines a species. And please watch that speciation with Hank video. So a species is a very specific scientific term. Um, and when we think about species, you have to have two organisms that can breed together. So two organisms that can have sex. And having sex is two things. One, tab A fits into slot B, but two, you want to, right? So you could have two species of lizard that are our ring species I'm gonna talk about in a minute that are technically able to have sex and able to have um, viable offspring, but you put them together and they go, I'm not doing it with that thing. And so they never will. So you have to have two things that are wanting to have sex and are able to have sex with the parts that they have to be the same species. Then once you have sex, you have to have viable offspring. Well, viable offspring means that you get a baby born and then that baby is able to have babies of its own. We have what's called hybrid um, infertility where you can get the hybrid species. You can get a grizzly bear and a polar bear to mate together and have that hybrid, but the hybrid itself is not fertile. It's a way of saying like, look, we're compatible enough to have a baby, but not compatible enough to let this continue on as a thing. We're not the same species. So here is our liger. It's a lion and a tiger, and we can create these things, um, but the liger is not fertile. And then our ring species here with our lizards, where up in Northern California, they are still mating, they are still the same species, but one branch of the species traveled to Southern California inland of the Sierra Nevadas. And so they were more deserty and they were exposed to more desert environments and their adaptations became more deserty. And one group came down the coastal side and they were like surfer dudes, like, hey. And by the time they get to Southern California, where they can now come back together because the mountain range is no longer separating them, you put them together. And even though they could mate, they won't. And so they are considered two different species at this point. You have to be able to mate. Okay, what are the barriers then to our gene pools? Genetic isolation is the commonest requirement of speciation. Um, what I mean by genetic isolation is you put a mountain range between two groups, two populations of the same species, and you leave them separated for enough time, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of years, and you expose them to different environmental factors that they have to adapt to to survive. Because of this, they then look different. Prezygotic isolation. Um, Prezygotic means before you even get the egg and the sperm to mate. Postzygotic means that you can get the egg and the sperm together, but they're not genetically compatible. So what are the prezygotic? What keeps the sperm and the egg from actually coming together? Temporal isolation, you're fertile at two different times of the year. So one species is fertile in um, spring. The other population is fertile in fall. Well, they're never going to be fertile at the same time. And so you're never gonna get egg to meet sperm. 
Ecological isolation, again, that mountain range splits the populations. And now you've got a group over on this side of the mountain, a group over on this side, and they can never come back together. Behavioral just means that your mating rituals are different. And so the male bird is like doing all this fancy dance and the chick's going, I don't care. I'm not into you, whatever. And so they'll never have sperm meat egg. Mechanical isolation is just different parts. Postzygotic um, hybrid invalidity. So the hybrids are produced, but they don't ever get sexually mature. Hybrid infertility, the hybrids can't produce functional gametes. They don't get functional eggs and sperm. And hybrid breakdown where the F1 hybrids are fertile, but the F2 can't have babies. Polyploidy and um, the next couple of ploides that we talk about are something that only happens in plants. And so organisms whose cells contain more than two homologous sets of chromosomes, the types are determined by how many sets of chromosomes there are. So a six is a hexploid, think Latin here. It's a form of speciation because if all of a sudden you've got more chromosomes than the parent generation or the other population, now you are not genetically viable with each other. The chromosomes don't match up. And if we don't have matching chromosomes, we don't get good babies essentially. Um, not common in sexual reproduction because you have to have the correct pairing. It's more when we see hybridization where we are as farmers forcing this in. Um, the more chromosomes you have, by the way, the more cytoplasm you have to have. And so as we go from a wild strawberry to the huge strawberries you're gonna to start to see in February for Valentine's Day, that's polyploidy. That is, we've been kind of forcing this extra set of chromosomes into the nucleus. And as we put more and more chromosomes in, we need more and more cytoplasm. And so the fruit gets bigger. Same thing with getting bigger flowers. So this is a natural strawberry. This is the one created through polyploidy. Again, this is something that we are doing as farmers in order to get crops that are going to be more appealing to humans. Auto polyploid can occur naturally or artificially. The chromosomes replicate, but the cells don't divide. So you've got this division of the DNA, but instead of actually going through with mitosis, you don't have the division of cells. And so now you just have way more chromosomes than you normally should. And the cytoplasm increases to keep the correct ratios. If you end up with an even number, you're fertile, an odd number, you're sterile. But again, if I'm a farmer doing this to increase my crops, I don't care if it's sterile. And in fact, think about seedless watermelons. This is the way they get seedless watermelons. This is how they make a watermelon sterile, essentially not producing seeds. And that's beneficial, right? People like that. Although polyploid is when a sterile hybrid doubles and becomes fertile again, creating a new species. Allopatric and sympatric speciation here. Speciation is the process where you get a new species. Allopatric, a single species, gives rise to a new species. And so one species all of a sudden is exposed to different environmental conditions and therefore gets different adaptations and now becomes different and cannot backbreed to the original population. It becomes a different species from the original population usually through geographic isolation. Sympatric speciation occurs while two populations are sharing the same geographic area, but for some reason they then differentiate. A lot of this has to do with resource sharing. And so let's say you're a bird and you've got a huge population of birds, 
But if you can have some of your birds eat nuts because their beaks mutated to be thicker, while as other birds are still eating seeds, now you can have these two populations living in the same area, but they've partitioned off the resources so they can survive happily. It lessens competition. Um, when we talk about geographic, we've got this grant, <coughs> excuse me, Grand Canyon squirrels where one is darker because he lives at higher elevation where it's colder in the pine forest and the other squirrel lives in a more deserty Arizona side here. There originally were the same squirrel before they got separated by the Grand Canyon. Adaptive radiation, a single species gives rise to new species. And this was Darwin's finches that you had a ancestor finch. And then as the beaks changed, you ended up with all of these other finches. The new species have homologous structures. Um, these structures have different form, but the same or same form, but not the same function. And the new species again fill in different niches for resource partitioning. Divergent evolution, also known as adaptive radiation, one species becomes multiple new species, each occupying an ecological niche. They have a common ancestor you can trace back to. Convergent evolution is two species that are living in the same area, hunting the same food, being exposed to the same environmental pressures, but they never shared a common ancestor. They start looking the same because they're evolving to adapt to the same environment, the same um, selective pressures, but they basically start looking together. They came from separate ancestors. So convergent evolution, we often think about the shark and the dolphin. Um, in a wave, you're not going to be able to really quickly tell the difference between the two of them, but they don't share a common ancestor. One's a mammal, one's a shark. Punctuated equilibrium um, is a theory of how evolution occurs. Punctuated equilibrium, there's like these stagnant times in history where there's no evolution occurring. And then we have something like climate change and bam, we have a period of massive evolution or we have an extinction and um, 95% of all the things on the planet were wiped off and 5% remain. Those 5% have massive period of evolution to fill all the available niches. Because of this, you wouldn't have a lot of intermediates. Um, you wouldn't have a great fossil record, right? Gradualism is saying that evolution is slowly and constantly occurring. The reality is it's probably a mixture of gradualism and punctuated equilibrium. Um, so both probably occur. The species are gradually evolving at all time, but then there could be some ecological disaster and you have a massive period of punctuated equilibrium. Transient polymorphism. Polymorphism is the idea that we have two or more forms of the same species within a population. Um, and we think here like sickle celled anemia is an example of transient polymorphism where the heterozygote um, is the one that is selected for. One form of the species will gradually replace another form. Balanced is where the heterozygote is the, slit, the trait selected for. Sickle cell anemia is the example you need of this. And we've talked about sickle cell anemia. Um, the reason why you have the heterozygote survive within the population is because there's a benefit to it, right? You don't get malaria in malaria prone areas if you're a heterozygote. And so you're gonna survive better. 
Natural selection leads to evolution because only the best suited for the environment get to have sex, get to live long, get to pass their genes on, and those genes become more dominant within the population over time. And then you have adaptive radiation from that. An example is antibiotic resistance in bacteria. So you get sick, you take antibiotics, you take only you know enough until you feel better, you don't finish your course, and some of the bacteria are left in your body. Well, the ones that are left are the ones that weren't susceptible to the antibiotics. And then they're the ones that get to reproduce. And when you get sick again, now you are immune to the original antibiotic that you were big, that you were given. And so they have to go in with a different antibiotic to cure you. MRSA is an example of an antibiotic resistant bacteria. And this next slide is gonna probably be a little squeamish, but this is what MRSA is. MRSA is a big deal. We're seeing it now that we've got all these turf fields that aren't getting washed often. Um, if you get MRSA on a turf field and then you go skin your knee in that same area, it's easily transmitted. Um, you guys have heard the peppered moth example before, so I'm just going to go right by it. There are two videos that I want you to watch. The Bozeman here, if you came out of AP Bio and you like Bozeman, or there's a crash course with Hank if you're like me, watch one or the other to really go through this information. And that's it for today.